0: This is a journey into sound brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together.
1: Lying on your back in the garage. You can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with higher and higher, filling it I'm quite mad, don't they?
0: My guest is Rick Halterman. He's the author of Curriculum of the Soul, a wonderful book. If you haven't checked it out yet, I strongly encourage you to do so. And you can find it at his website, which is curriculumofthesoul.com. And it's truly a wonderful, wonderful book. It's full of wonderful poetry and wonderful photographs, because Rick is also a wonderful photographer. and. It's full of essays on numerous essential topics in the realm of the soul and our relationship to this, what we might call this unseen world that is pretty much overlooked by this materialist, consumerist, capitalist world that we live in today.
1: Yeah, and that's actually a a perfect doorway to enter. And you're going to be a wonderful participant in this conversation, because I think we need to talk about sort of the setup. And I don't get into it so much in the book, although it's certainly in there, but the setup of our lives. And then, you know, what do we do to get back to a soul centered view versus that very point of view you were just discussing as far as the materialistic capitalistic culture, which is kind of the ego centered view. So the setup you know, we're born obviously with a body, we have parents. So that's kind of the close environment that we have. And hopefully we learn to figure out how to deal with our bodies, how to work with our parents, and at a certain age start to discern, hopefully as we get older, what were the great things that we got in our childhood? What were the kind of awkward things we may have gotten in our childhood? And how do we clean all that stuff up? So that's the close part. So first, why don't you comment on that in terms of how you see this sort of creates who we are. Well, I totally agree with you. That
0: is what we do. It's the journey of the human being. And when we're born, we're kind of blank slates, these sponges that literally take in everything around us without any boundaries of the experience we're having with our parents and the people around us, other things around us usually living things that are moving and interacting with us, whatever we experience with them becomes the foundation of the stories we tell about ourselves and the world around us and our relationship with that world around us. And as you said, there can be many wonderful aspects of that. And there are also almost always plenty of kind of disastrous and very uncomfortable and dysfunctional aspects of that.
1: Yeah. So that's kind of the, I think the primary layer. And then the second layer that gets added onto it are all the cultural things that will start showing up. And a lot of times, of course, through our parents and our siblings, but through our friends, you know, the family's friends, all that, and whatever cultural beliefs and all kinds of things in which basically as an individual each one of us are making decisions and really creating beliefs as far as how are we going to navigate the sheer immensity of all of this input does that make sense to you
0: oh absolutely so what you're talking about is there are layers of culture yes layers of intimacy and we begin with our inner cultural layer with our parents Mm -hmm. And then after a while, our parents start taking us out into the world and we start developing a relationship with our wider family and friends. And eventually, as we get older, we venture further and further out into the outer world. So there are all these layers, nested layers of culture, of the world, you know, whatever labels you want to put on it. But Yeah, they have a profound influence and effect upon us. And until we're considerably older, we have no idea of the effect they're having on us.
1: We think it's all normal. That's what's so fascinating. In my particular family, none of us were actually physically touched by parents at all. And I don't know if it's generational or just my parents. All I know is by the time that I was starting to get involved in relationships around college, I was realizing that it was kind of strange because I really didn't know that you touch, say, your partner, you know, beyond, say, you know, a sexual context, just in terms of a way to communicate, a way to reassure, a way to feel human. So there was this interesting belief that I had that I ultimately had to unravel and still probably dealing with even to some extent now, because like I'm with a partner at the moment who absolutely adores touching and so a lot of times it can be like whoa what's this all about what's going on why am i being touched that kind of thing <laughs> how have you dealt with that actually initially it was awkward because i just didn't have any context so how do i deal with this as i've gotten older you know i realized like oh this is in fact Much more normal behavior than I ever, ever imagined. And so I've kind of fallen into it because in the past it was always, this is just strange. I don't even know how to react. You know, I don't even know how to accept or reject or anything. Now it's so much easier to accept and feel a certain kind of vulnerability and not feel any kind of judgment going on. So, in essence, all these beliefs that you and I are talking about right now, they literally become the lens for how we look at the world. And that could be, for instance, the fact that, you know, I'm a white guy and this would be all very unconscious kind of stuff. Well, as a white guy, I can do this, I can do that. And then I start encountering, you know, like going into, say, a racially diverse culture and realize like, oh, maybe it isn't the way that I thought it was growing up and having to readjust those kinds of things. And we live in such an interesting time now to see how a lot of those sorts of beliefs are getting unearthed and really looked at in terms of implicit bias, racism, misogyny. Those sort of things are really getting unearthed because those are cultural beliefs that ultimately cause harm to other human beings and therefore in the long run are not particularly useful.
0: You know, all of what we've been talking about pertains to the creation of meaning. We create meaning through our experiences and we do it unconsciously, don't we? The process of meaning making is pretty much done automatically and unconsciously. I think our brain is kind of hardwired to integrate information.
1: Mm-hmm. Is that the way you see it? Except I'm a little bit careful as far as that word meaning, because I I go back to that Joseph Campbell quote when somebody asked him about meaning and Joseph Campbell responded, and this is not exact, but in essence, he said, I don't think we're really looking for meaning. What we're really looking for are those experiences that resonate with the deepest part of who we really are so that we can feel the rapture of being alive. And some people may want to say that that experience is meaning for them, but I know just exactly what you're saying, and I agree with you, that we're looking for those things that so resonate with who we are. And this is where it gets a little bit complex, because on one hand, I can remember in classes where this is basic psychology, a false self can get created through these belief systems. You know, that, for instance, I'm entitled as a white male, you know, in any culture on the planet, that kind of thing. You know, that these kind of false beliefs or I have to be social and I have to be happy all the time and I have to strive for success. There's a whole kind of false self that can get created. And this is where ultimately we get to this place talking about no-white balancing. How do we strip away these false aspects of ourselves to become who we really are? that's kind of lying underneath all of this. You know, the person, again, there was a Joseph Campbell quote. He talked about men in our culture that were climbing the ladder of success only to discover when they got to the top that it was leaning against the wrong wall.
0: So this meaning that I was referring to, it's an automatically generated kind of meaning. And it's not, it's different from the kind of meaning that as we get older, we're actively and more consciously looking for, and is really equivalent to our belief systems. Yes. Those structures, these very elaborate, almost like urban structures, you know, yeah. if we can imagine our psyche as being like a city mm-hmm. of a constructed image, and to consider that probably the overwhelming majority of that city was constructed completely unconsciously just through the influences we've received from everybody around us. So essentially what we're doing is we're building the past into our present and future.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. And this is where it gets kind of interesting because I think that when we have constructed this city on a solid foundation, and the simplest way of looking at it is when beliefs are coming from basically the neighborhood of love, that probably things are gonna be working out. And we live in what I would consider primarily a fear-based world. And this is a lot of our culture saying that, you know, you want to be this and you don't want to be that and you definitely want to join the crowd and you're supposed to be watching television and you're supposed to have a social media account and da-da-da-da-da. It keeps going on and on and on. And as we can see, when it comes down to actual body symptoms and our culture in particular, a lot of this stuff isn't really working out very well. What is it? We're 4% of the world's population and we consume 70% of the world's pharmaceutical supply. That's crazy to me.
0: Well, I totally agree with you about the fear thing. And the direct connection and opposition to love is that we have been, I think, to a large degree in our culture, we have been trained through that fear to be afraid to express love freely because we're afraid of getting hurt right? Because even our parents received our unconditional love in rather chaotic and inconsistent and sometimes very damaging or hurtful ways. So Mm -hmm. if we can't depend on our own parents who are supposed to be the ones who love us and care for us the most, then how can we possibly trust the rest of the world? Yeah. How's that for a set of meaning
1: <laughs> and, and beliefs
0: about the world and ourselves, because yeah. then we reflected back to ourselves. that, oh, this must mean something about me. I must not be lovable. If my parents don't love me or if the world around me doesn't love me and accept me as I am, there must be something deeply and fundamentally wrong with me because When we're young, we have a much deeper, more visceral sense of who we are than many adults do because many adults are so distracted by the outer world that they completely forget that there even is an inner world. And even those of us who are aware of that inner world are so easily distracted by the outer world that we forget about it, right?
1: You are hitting the nail right on the head, which is just gorgeous. And I'd even add just a little piece in here because you are hitting the ultimate thing, which is that fear place of like, I think probably all of us have on some level, a certain kind of abandonment thing based on the very thing you just discussed. It's like, well, it must not be lovable enough, you know, if I'm not getting it 100% of the time. There's also, and now we're facing that cultural thing, particularly for men, not so much for women, but the idea of being vulnerable to any extent as a male in this culture is basically you are not going to make it in the capitalist culture if you're going to be vulnerable out there. You're not going to get the salary you deserve. You're not going to be tough enough to deal with the competition, da, da 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 da. Just goes on and on and on. In essence, we're screwed from the beginning based on that belief.
0: Yeah. Yeah. In the male world, The masculine energetic world, there's so much competition and it's based on this notion of a combination of scarcity and fear and scarcity helps reinforce that sense of fear that there's not enough for me and therefore I have to compete with everybody else. And in our culture up until very recently, that's been mainly that we have to compete with other men.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and you've you've said this beautifully, and I love that you were use the word scarcity. You know, one of my teachers, Robert Waterman, he likes to use the word lack. And this is a huge syndrome going on in our culture that somehow, and I don't know if this is so directly intertwined with capitalism or not, but it's basically that there's never, like you said, there'll never be enough. You know, like the car I have isn't new enough, the house that i'm living in isn't in good enough shape i'll never be receiving enough love for my partner where's all the food that i deserve it just is literally endless
0: well that's the neurotic end of it i'm thinking more in terms of you know there's this pie and there's only so many slices in it or like the game of musical chairs where somebody is always getting bumped out i'm thinking that model which is less a neurotic thing and a much more viscerally sense fear of impending doom, because we know, based upon our experience in this world and what we've learned, and of course, of living in this capitalistic system, that everybody is fighting over things with this almost completely unquestioned view that there isn't enough for everybody, that there is scarcity, there's only so much, and that we are all playing a zero-sum game with each other. So it's, you know, every man for himself
1: kind of a thing. Yeah, and And I think we're talking kind of the same thing, because it seems to me this would be one of the beliefs that keeps capitalism rolling on the tracks, this very thing you're talking about exactly and
0: the old school which is still in power you know you look to uh government it's predominantly old white men
1: mm-hmm.
0: who are still living that old that old belief system that old system of meaning which is based on capitalism materialism fear scarcity all those wonderful things <laughs>
1: that, uh, well, and that nature can be exploited endlessly
0: Oh, yeah. Well, that goes without saying, not just nature, but everything in nature, including us. And in some ways, especially us, because in a metaphorical sense, we are the geese that lay the golden eggs that they reap and take to the bank. You know, those who are good at playing the capitalist game.
1: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) i know there was a gal who i met recently we were hiking and met up on the trail and she was asking about the website to get my book and i said just buy it from me directly so that you don't have to give jeff bezos any more tax-free income
0: exactly
1: so anyhow here we are with this setup and we all have this you know now from a soul center point of view in theory, all of this craziness that happens to us—these beliefs, whatever—are actually things that the soul is bringing about to help us more to get in line with this area of love. But more often, what happens is that we end up with body symptoms, or relationships keep falling apart, or we keep getting fired, or you know, things just don't work out. In one sense, so then the question becomes: So how? would one get back sort of in balance with who you really are versus being basically a victim of all these belief systems that are pretty heavy handedly laid on us?
0: Yeah. And that's the great work of our lives, because there seems to be almost an infinite number of layers of stuff that we've picked up. And it's like you recognize one thing and you kind of come to terms with it. And then you realize, oh, there's, here's another layer. Here's another one. Here's another one. Here's another one. And here's another one. And it just keeps going on, you know, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade. And it's like, does this ever end? And and I think most people agree that no, it doesn't end. Life is this continually unfolding process of growth and self-discovery, self-inquiry. And People talk about self-realization, and self-realization, I guess, is returning back to the soul, to the place, the realm of the soul, where there is no concern for all those outer crap, let's say.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I I think that's very accurate, Tonio. So like in your case, as you have realized, there are obviously many dimensions here, but of course there's part of you that loves to get your hand in the soil. There's a part of you that's a great listener. There's a part of you that really loves to get involved, say, in a reading and then, of course, a conversation so you can feel into the whole thing and get more things out of it. These seem to me very natural gifts that you had and developed, obviously, over a course of a lifetime. Other people would not have necessarily those things. Does that resonate for you?
0: Yeah, and I would add that I love connecting with people about what they are most passionate about mm-hmm. talking about and thinking about and feeling into just like what we are doing right now getting to talk and connect with you like this brings me wonderful joy and satisfaction
1: yeah in fact you know i, I discussed this with my partner sometimes because she's far more social than i am and i said you know there's a line from a Rilke poem. And there's a couple of different translations, but in essence, the line is, I want to be with those who know or people who know secret things or else alone. And it seems to me like in your conversations, you're talking to people that have done a certain amount of work in whatever terrain that they've done. And it's really quite fascinating because it keeps hitting this deeper level, the soul level. And doesn't matter whether you're talking to your friend in Burlington about, you know, oriental medicine or you're talking to the person you had recently who was, oh, his the key of meaning was the name of his book. You know, that you're still hitting this terrain from whatever avenue, but there's something quite rich going on. I would say we're connecting at the soul level, even yes. though we're
0: talking about these outer things or we're yeah. using language, which is, you know, it's a system of symbols. It's an outer way of relating to deeper more essential things
1: right yes yeah. so now we're going to get really into the noetic balancing thing and i'll just give you a quick little history there was a guy by the name of phineas quimby that was in your neck of the woods up in new england and this was in the late 1800s and he had the consumption which was tuberculosis and so they put people in sanitariums at the time and you know for whatever length of time to to get cured if that was possible And he was out during his stay at the sanitarium. He had a buggy with a horse and he was out on the roads, you know, just going for some fresh air. And at some point he lost control of the horse went crazy for whatever reason. And he had to, you know, obviously get it back under control. Otherwise, there'd be a big wreck. And he did get it under control. And then within about two or three days, his tuberculosis was completely gone. And he was fascinated what happened? And so he started doing research. I guess he was a good friend of the woman who started the Church of Christian Scientists. And they believed in, you know, the idea that the body has all the tools to really take care of whatever, you know, heal itself. So he started getting into this kind of energetic terrain, as far as if he could find this certain energetic spot inside of himself. First, of course, you know, to be able to heal himself. But then he started seeing clients. And, you know, and this is, of course, more in in the context of that day. He was bringing in what he would call the Christ energy and not in the way that religions would really think of it today. But he would bring this energy and then clients would show up and then they would get healed. So then by the 1950s and 60s, this had evolved to where They were putting clients on like a massage table, and they were starting basically to work in the energy field around each client. And what this whole thing you and I were just doing as a preface to where I am right now in this conversation, all those beliefs, everything we've ever experienced, thought, are all in essence contained in this energetic field around our bodies. And that's called the noetic field. And I should define noetic the actual meaning of that word you know the modern thing is about they they think of it as thinking but the old way of looking at noetic is the inner knowing so the idea of this particular practice is how do we get into the inner knowing and in essence what it's doing is how do we erase the false beliefs so that whatever you know, this person, who they really are, that inner knowing, that can be revealed all by itself. Because remember, and and I know you used this quote before in our previous conversations, when Rumi talked about, our job is not to seek for love, but to find all the barriers that we have put in the way. Does that make
0: sense? Oh, absolutely.
1: So noetic balancing now, it's evolved over time. And it's hardly what I would call a mainstream modality here in America. In fact, one of my teachers, this is Robert's partner, she just thinks America simply isn't ready for it at this point in time. In Europe, they've been teaching it for a number of years and it's really quite taken off. Americans don't seem to be that interested at the moment. Anyhow, what happens in the actual balancing now is that say, if you were the client, you would be on the table, I would open up with a prayer, and basically create a sacred space i use a pendulum as a as a practitioner and i know already people would be turned off by that idea but this is goes back pretty far in terms of how to detect certain energies then what i do is about i don't know could be eight to twelve inches off the body is what's called the physical and i just put my hand, you know, and I, and I sort of scan across the body and wherever, and this is how it shows up for me. Some people it's visual, but for me, it shows up as like a little blast of cold air. And that's where there's a block. And this is on the physical level. So there's no conversation going on, anything like that. Soon as I feel that block, I drop the pendulum into it. And I don't do anything with my arms or my hand or anything like that. And the pendulum starts rotating all by itself from the energy of that block. And then when the pendulum stops doing its rotation, that means the block has gotten cleared. So that'll take about ten or fifteen minutes at the most to do that. Then go up another eight or ten inches. That's called the emotional level. And again, silently you go through, get rid of all the blocks. And then finally, there's what's called the mental and the spiritual level. And that's where we talk to the client. And it's this very thing that you and I have been discussing here: is start unpacking those beliefs. And in essence. At least for me as a practitioner, I can feel from those first two levels, from the physical and the emotional, I can feel the places where there have been blocks, and then I can ask questions accordingly based on that. And this starts getting into the chakra system. And for instance, if there was a bunch of blocks around one's feet, then I would be asking questions of, so tell me about a time when you didn't have a place in this world, or you're not sure of your standing in the world, that kind of thing. It gets really almost like using like metaphor and pun, at least this is how I approach it. So then we basically start unpacking these core beliefs that really don't come from love. In fact, I was bringing up an example just the other day of somebody who was from Thailand this was a client and I was having the hardest time trying to break through and to get any kind of response on any level and I'd ask all kinds of questions and it was always this kind of like no everything's fine everything's okay and what about this no it just goes on until finally you know and I knew enough of the story of this particular person he had grown up the parents had long since left he had been raised by a grandfather who had a huge military background. So everything was chores. There was no nurturing, it was all chores. And then I ended up, because what we do is we use forgiveness, self-forgiveness, as this is the way to clear. And of course, it was with the help of the pendulum. So I said, so, okay, let's try this one. I forgive myself for believing there's no such thing as home. And he immediately, this is a guy who's pretty hardened. He immediately went to tears for at least a few minutes. And That was really the one thing that we really got after in that particular session, and that was huge, absolutely huge. So in the course of a session, we could end up, I've had people that really are right on it, and they're the ones who are making up the self-forgiveness statements. The self-forgiveness, and this goes back to something you and I have discussed also, Tonio, before, that from this perspective of noetic balancing, if you do your 10%, that is whatever it is in terms of like looking at an issue, praying, who knows whatever process you might use, that God, and this is from the noetic point of view, not the God of the religious point of view, but God, uh, this other kind of energy that is far greater than any of us can possibly imagine. God does the other 90%. So if somebody comes up with a self-forgiveness statement, and actually I do this every day, Tonio, at the end of my meditation, I do, you know, some prayers and I always come up with a forgiveness statement. I kind of dig in and, and be like, oh, so what's going on today? And what is it that I need to forgive myself for? Because I keep kind of running into whatever that wall is at that particular moment in my life. So this is another lovely thing about the practice. You don't need to. And of course, it's it's quite effective to go to a practitioner and you get a lot of work done. You know, like my partner, she had just gotten a balancing from Carrie, who's Robert Waterman's partner, Carrie Thorne. And she came back, she said, This is like therapy on steroids. And I said, Yeah, I had a client that said, This is like nine months of weekly therapy done in an hour, hour and a half. Because we're never very interested in a story per se, although it's interesting. We're really after what is the belief that's holding up the story. And once you get these things, like in that Rumi quote, once you get the barriers out of the way, then grace has a chance to start bringing forth those aspects of who we really are. How does that sound to you? It sounds great.
0: I'm totally with you. I love the notion that we
1: do,
0: you said we do 10% and then all that is does the rest. It's interesting because 10% is what is referred to in terms of reaching critical mass. If 10% of a population of of any community reach a certain level, that that is considered to be the threshold of critical mass?
1: To make change, yes.
0: For transformation. Now, I don't have any direct understanding if that is actually accurate or not, but I find that to be a a fascinating kind of mathematical equation there.
1: Actually, you know, Islam has... Another variation of the same thing. And this, I I believe it shows up in the Quran. In Islam, It's they say, you take one step towards God, God will take 10 steps towards you.
0: Yeah. And also with the pendulum, many people use pendulums for dowsing. And you're actually using the pendulum in a different way. You're you're doing dowsing directly with your hand to sense blockages. And then you place the pendulum into that spot so it's sort of like the pendulum represents a portal to grace or to the divine (laughs) to do that work of the other 90 percent in a way just showing up to lie down on the table of a practitioner is a major step towards self-healing
1: that's absolutely true in fact i had a client way back when who used to tell me she said oh rick You know, as soon as the appointment's made, I can tell it's already working on me. Yeah. (laughs) But the other part of this too, and this gets into the practitioner side, just like with any practitioner with any modality, we have to get to like such a complete neutrality. Right. We have to get out of the way of what's
0: possible for the other person.
1: That's exactly right. So that, for instance, we don't do any kind of balancings on anybody that would be like, for instance, an intimate partner or anybody in our family, because we already have our karma mixed up with those people.
0: Right. We would have to, quote unquote, recuse ourselves.
1: Yes, exactly. (laughs) That's good. So as you can see, there's this very interesting process going on. And I think this goes back to that Phineas Quimby thing I was saying before, that as a practitioner, I'm there in as neutral place as possible so that these other energies can do their work. I'm trying to work with grace and that 90% or whatever, simply by opening the doors and then let grace do what's necessary after that point.
0: You mean let the client call forth the grace unto themselves?
1: Yes, exactly. without,
0: without you adding any further impediments
1: to the process <laughs> exactly tonio because all we're doing you know the teacher i had for this balancing thing she said we're just unpacking boxes so if i might start with something as general as i remember i had a client once it was a woman and there was a fear about really speaking her truth is what it came down to and you know the thing about balancing it can really get into wild areas like past lives and those sorts of things whether you believe in the, you know or not but in her case she really was running some interesting belief that she had been a witch in a previous lifetime and had been burned at the stake for speaking her truth so you know of course that would lead right into i forgive myself for believing that my life will always be on the line whenever i speak my truth and then you know have the client take a deep breath and you know what's interesting in this process is of course i'm holding a pendulum as we're doing this you know over a particular chakra as like with the one about this belief in their will that would be right above the neck there and the pendulum is the one that ultimately lets me know has this thing been cleared or not so for instance the pendulum will keep doing its rotation thing if it isn't completely cleared out so sometimes Like this seems to show up. If it's somebody who comes from, say, Europe that I've done a balancing on, there's a lot of times ancestral stuff. And so I'll have to add a whole nother layer that it might be, say, that belief, that forgiveness statement that I just mentioned to you. But then I'll have to add on, you know, I'll do it again and say, forgive myself for believing that my life is at stake if I speak my truth in this lifetime, past lives, my ancestors and my genetic line so that you're cleaning all the way through the past. And then at that point it'll be like, oh, well there the pendulum just stopped. It looks like we got it. So there's a lot of energies that play here all the time, as you can imagine. Western science would be like, what the hell do you think you're doing? But you know, here's a more modern example. There was a woman. This was back, I think, back in the 60s when they were still working in Alamogordo. This is Robert Waterman and all these other people. There was a woman who had had, in essence these kind of boils on both of her legs. And she'd had them for, you know, most of her life. And this was when they were doing those three layers i mentioned back before, the physical, the emotional, and the spiritual mental. They were doing them in separate balancings. So in this particular one, they were doing a silent balancing. And then they got to this other place where they did just start talking a little bit. And somebody in the room who was witnessing said, oh, you need to forgive yourself for that which they hadn't really gotten into that terrain before, she did and within a few days, all those boils were gone. And this is not to say that noetic balancing is gonna heal any particular cancer or heart disease or anything like that, but it can have an impact because I think in our culture with all those false beliefs that we talked about earlier in our conversation, there is a certain point that those false beliefs create a certain kind of stress with the body And then the body, depending on the body, is going to show up somehow, whether it's just weird dreams or a body symptom or whatever craziness. You know, we live in a culture that has a lot of kind of compromised immune systems. And we're really very much instinct and intuition injured, that we're no longer, as a general culture, not very connected to those areas because we are so from the neck up. Does that resonate for you? Oh,
0: yeah, of course. So one thing that really stood out, and I'm not sure if we've actually talked about this or not, but I suspect we have, that there's great significance in formulating the right statement. When you're doing this kind of work it's sort of like if you don't ask the right question there's no way you're going to be able to even begin to access the answer that you're really looking for but in this case we're talking about statements like there's statements of self-forgiveness there's statements of of the healing that we're asking for and also the level of it or the extent of it or the range like whether it's just for within our own lives or past lives and and ancestral lines and all of that. So it's like when we we formulate the statement, it's sort of like formulating an intention. It's clarifying, it's using language, using symbols to bridge our outer being with our deepest power
1: in a way. That's exactly right, Tonio. And I'll just add to that what you just mentioned. As a practitioner, the way I go about this, it's kind of a complex thing that you're bringing up, is that I'll say, here's what I'm coming up with as far as a forgiveness statement. Then I'll say to the client, I'll say, but I want you to modify it in any way because what we're after is hitting the nail on the head. And the thing about these forgiveness statements is that we came up with these beliefs for the most part as little kids. And so that's actually quite simple. They're not complicated. They're not big, long dissertations or anything like that. It's really quite simple. I forgive myself for believing that I'm unlovable. I forgive myself for believing that I'm unworthy. And, you know, and actually I discussed this whole process in the Curriculum of the Soul. You know, the other thing, too, is like I forgive myself for judging because those seem to be the two areas that we are most adept at as human beings (laughs) when we go out in the world. So and I'll do this all the time, too, you know, out in the world. It's like, you know, I forgive myself for judging the physical condition of that person, because clearly I really have no idea what the backstory is. You know, if I saw someone in the grocery store, that kind of thing. So it's it's sort of like and this is where Ho'oponopono that we've discussed before the Hawaiian practice comes in. How do we keep this whole thing clean? all the time in whatever tools and it could be as simple as instead of doing the forgiveness statement it could be i'm sorry forgive me thank you i love you
0: but that encompasses the forgiveness statement yes. in a kind of an all-purpose way
1: yes so this is where it gets interesting Tonio. is that in theory by the end of say a particular balancing but this is what hopefully we're doing in all of our lives in the course of our day-to-day existence how do we keep this field around us flowing And here's a very interesting thing, there's a period, and I haven't done a lot of balancings lately for whatever reason, I couldn't explain why, but there was a period where I was doing quite a number, and that there's what's called the etheric body, which is, you know, another energy body that's around our body, and the etheric body needs to be attached, you know, completely in order for us to function in the best possible way our, our potential allows. And what I was finding repeatedly during this period of balancing, so this was probably about five or six years ago, that it was always on the right side, that the etheric body was detached. And this can happen. This can happen through some kind of trauma in your life. It could happen through a physical accident. It could happen, say, because of the end of a relationship, whatever traumatized. And, you know, there's that expression, and this is so interesting, there's that expression that someone was beside themselves when the etheric body shifts over and it's detached on one part, that people, and I think this is probably most of our culture right now, most people are operating from the position of being actually beside themselves and concerning whatever it is, you know, that they're doing and thinking about. And part of the balancing process is to get all of this attached again, so that we get grounded, we get centered, and we let everything flow, and then who we really are can emerge as a natural course because these barriers have gotten out of the way.
0: Yeah, everything getting aligned and balanced. And I want to quickly get back to the significance of formulating the quote-unquote right statement. Yes, yeah. There's two aspects of it. It's very easy for people in our culture to hear what you described. You did the statement where I forgive myself for believing in stuff in my life from past lives and from my ancestral lines. And I can see how many people in our culture would be, oh, how can you possibly expect that to work just by saying that? But when you hit upon the right statement, you can feel it. It's like when you hit the nail. Right on the head, you feel that you've done it. You don't get that from seeing it. You get it from the feeling you get from it. Yes. So when you make the right statement, because a lot of times, as you were describing, you're kind of fumbling around and you're waiting for the client to go, yeah, that's it. And mm-hmm. when you hit the right statement, whether you're doing it with yourself or you're waiting for your client to acknowledge something, you feel it. You absolutely feel it and when you feel that connection that's when it's kind of like when the pieces of puzzle snap into place together in wholeness there's this tremendous sense of satisfaction that is felt viscerally resounding through like every cell in the body that yes that's it
1: and and that's so true Tony it isn't always for instance as somebody goes to tears but I remember once I had had some dream, which I couldn't possibly recall at this moment. And sometimes after a dream, you know, and this is during my meditations in the morning, the meditation that I'll try and come up with a forgiveness statement if the dream is heading in that direction. And I can remember the forgiveness statement still. This was years ago. And the forgiveness statement was, I forgive myself for believing that others can love me more than I think I'm capable of loving myself. And I can feel that right now. You know, there is this like real sadness going like, oh, my God. And I knew I would hit the very thing that you're just talking about, that sensation, because, you know, it's almost like a certain weight has been just lifted off your shoulders or you've hit some kind of essential truth. You're just like, wow, the world just completely changed. That's amazing. And you can't really describe it more than you know like I've had clients get off of the table and say, "Oh my god, Rick, every color in this room looks completely different and deeper to me than I've ever seen before in my life."
0: Right. Another really good metaphor is if you have a keychain with tons of keys on it and you're trying to open a lock and and you're trying all these different keys, there's only one key and when it works, it turns and it unlocks the lock and then you yeah. can open up the door and it's
1: that simple. Yes. Yes. And this is a thing that I found so amazing because actually, you know, there's a book group in Fort Collins, a group of wonderful women. They've been working with my book for four years now, and they were just finishing up this whole section on spirituality, and they were really having a hard time with the overlay of their religious backgrounds. And they were saying like, so Rick, how do we deal with stuff like forgiveness and things? I said, well, all I know is I, for instance, had. The influence of being like my parents, this was interesting, they would drop myself and my siblings off at a Sunday school. This is at a a reformed Protestant church in upstate New York. And then we would go straight from Sunday school to the church service itself. And then my parents would pick us up after. They never attended any. (laughs) anyhow so when i was talking to these women in fort collins we were doing a zoom thing and they were saying like so what do we do with forgiveness i said you know it wasn't until i came across this idea of self-forgiveness this lovely you know because i think a lot of churches will teach this idea that we have to forgive our enemies we have to forgive whoever has somehow trespassed against us that kind of thing then when i came to this rather private and lovely thing of oh, I can actually be sitting there, I could be doing anything. I could be watching television, I could be in the grocery store, and I can come up with a forgiveness statement silently, privately, and I can keep this whole process going all the time. That's amazing to me, the thought. And I think this leads into when you and I had that conversation about Dr. Hugh Len, the Ho'oponopono guy, of taking 100% responsibility, which is very much connected to this very practice of How do we show up in the world? And even though I may not know, like, for instance, all of the intricacies or what it would feel like, for instance, to be a Palestinian living in an occupied territory, what do I do to respond? And it could be with Ho'oponopono or, you know, I forgive myself or whatever that would be related to this thing. We always get to be present enough to show up for anything that happens in our lives and even out of our lives so that we're keeping it clean all the time. What do you think of that?
0: Yeah, that's a beautiful thing to be doing and to aspire to. And I also quickly want to go back because I want to solidify yeah, yeah. all of this as much as possible. In our materialist mechanistic culture, we have this tendency to look for physical mechanisms that will create or cause a healing, like our Western medical approach, we have come to believe that a pill, there has to be a pill or an injection
1: mm-hmm.
0: for there to be healing. And that's why there's so much distrust about psychotherapy and mm-hmm. things like that, because there's no physical mechanism and there's no way that talk could affect any healing. That'd be like talking to a nail to, convince, <laughs> to penetrate some pieces that's of wood. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs>
0: But it's not that there's anything wrong with the mechanistic view of the world as long as it's balanced and made whole with the unseen and energetic and all the other aspects of existence that is routinely either ignored or rejected in our mechanistic culture.
1: Yeah. And the way I would put it, and this is, I describe this a lot in the book too, which is that when you're talking about the soul, you're talking about the physical, emotional, psychological, and the spiritual, all four of those bodies. And I like to use that word bodies. You know, We have an emotional body, we have a psychological body, we have a spiritual body. When all four of those interweave, then we're talking about the fabric of the soul. And I would by no means ever belittle the great successes, for instance, of Western medicine. When it comes to trauma care, I think U.S. Western medicine is among the best on the planet, literally. But when it comes to the more evasive things, you know, like shingles and stuff like that, I mean, I guess there's a vaccine now that's uh, apparently quite effective in terms of preventing shingles. But we still don't understand from a Western point of view where any of this stuff comes from, you know, these sort of evasive things, you know, like considering still our number one and two killers in America are cancer and heart disease. And Robert Waterman, you know, he has this interesting idea. This is more of that noetic perspective, that cancer are cells that no longer know who they really are.
0: And of course, heart disease is a dis-ease of a disconnection with our heart.
1: Yes, exactly. And
0: connection through our heart body with the rest of the world and every aspect of the world that also has a heart body or emotional
1: body. And that's where, as we would mentioned before, this idea of our culture living from the neck up, that disconnection from the heart that there has to be repercussions at a certain point, and we're seeing it. And of course, God bless those people doing the research to try and do what they can to minimize the effects of this sort of thing. But this is another interesting piece. And I don't know if the mystery school that are in your spiritual background, you had this kind of information, which to me was a revelation. And this was in the mystery school with Robert Waterman. And he said, instead of taking a body symptom as, you know, diagnosis, which is how Western medicine goes about it, take it as information, and then what do you do at that point? Because the thing is with diagnosis, then you have now literally collapsed the world of possibilities. So for instance, my mother, she used to do this, not so much lately, but she would say she had neuropathy in her feet, i.e. a deadening of the nerve endings in her feet and her toes. And I would tell her, I said, you know, if you haven't had that actually diagnosed and it hasn't been tested or anything, I said, you've now entered that morphic field of neuropathy and you can literally bring that on. And I can remember Richard Bartlett, the matrix energetics guy, he used to talk about in his workshops, he would say he thought it was sinful that Western doctors would tell anybody that they had a terminal illness and that this was their life expectancy he said, as soon as you lay that information, there will be some people, of course, who were they're out the door based on whatever information they've been told because they'll believe it. And then there are other people who will, and this is, of course, a minority, other people will say, we're not having that experience and we'll go and do whatever work is necessary. And then, like the classic one of Louise Hay. I think it was about thirty plus years ago, Tonio. She was diagnosed with cervical cancer by two doctors. They gave her both nine months to live. They said, "You're out of here. Get all your affairs in order." So she did this interesting thing, and she and this is in all of her books that are out there. She did every alternative modality she could find. She's a strong believer in the power of positive thinking, and after eight months she went back to those two same two doctors that had told her she had nine months to live and they said well we can't possibly explain it but there's no sign of cancer whatsoever in your body and she ended up living for like another 25 or 30 years so she was obviously an exception to the case and there are hard realities in terms of some of these things that are going on in our bodies but To the extent that we are impacting what's happening in our bodies, you know, there's the Rudolf Steiner belief system. We're basically, from that perspective, that our biography is what determines our biology. So that, for instance, the Western approach is basically saying, you know, we're going to run some tests, here are the symptoms, and here's either the surgery or the pharmaceutical solution. And that's the end of the discussion. From the Rudolf Steiner approach, it's like, well, tell me what's going on in your life. You know, tell me about your diet. Where are the stresses? How's your, you know, your marriage, all that kind of stuff. And then to see where that might have an impact on what is showing up in the body. Now, I remember in the old days when Barbara Brennan was doing any work, she used to be a NASA physicist, but she got into therapy and she was doing a lot of kind of, you know, early energy work. And she was discovering that if there was a block, something happening out here in the field around our body, if she could clean that up first through, you know, whatever method she was using at that time, then she was able to forestall or to either eliminate or prevent the possibility, say, of a liver cancer showing up, things like that. So it got very interesting. So we're getting into this idea of the subtle energy field. And to what extent are we playing? Like I was having a conversation with that gal I mentioned who I met hiking, and we're just talking about this general area of abundance. Of course, one could get degrees and what could become, you know, an anesthesiologist or something like that and have a fancy lexus and doing all that kind of thing. But there's there's these other other ways of going about it through gratitude, through healthy living, through doing this forgiveness work, doing all this stuff that, the world, it seems to me, if you're getting in sync with the world, will give us what we need, not necessarily what we want, but what we need. And, and I think you might be a good example, Tony, in your own life. I don't think that you live particularly extravagantly. Is that right?
0: <laughs>
1: you're right. <laughs>
0: perhaps perhaps more so than than you realize. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but do you find that you still have pretty much everything you need?
0: Oh, absolutely. In fact, I have more than I need. I have yeah. way more than I need. I mean, I look at the technology I have and the amount of food I have and the space that I have, and it's way more than I need. <laughs> I mean, I could live quite well with much less, and I probably would live even better without a lot of this stuff. It's just that I've, I've become very habituated to it. and And you could say, you know, once you get a taste of something of certain things it can be hard to let go of it like both of us are old enough to remember you know lived through the evolution of the telephone and the answering machine and voicemail and and email and texting and cell phone i mean i remember when answering machines first showed up and i was like i don't want one of those things and then <laughs> And then once we we finally got one because we realized that we're missing all these calls and people are saying, "Well, I tried to call you and blah blah blah," <laughs> and then we couldn't imagine not having an answering machine. And then there's voicemail and then email and and now you know I don't have a cell phone, but people who have cell phones now they can't imagine not having a cell phone and being able right. to be reached or to reach somebody wherever mm-hmm. they are. And me, I still feel very strongly about the telephone, get the behind me. I don't want a telephone attached to my hip. I don't want people to be able to call me and distract me and interrupt my life at any possible moment.
1: Yeah. And you know this is interesting because I was bringing this topic up with my partner the other day and I was talking about how much our culture is embroiled in a certain kind of telemetry in terms of all these electronic devices. And To what extent is that having an impact? And I don't know, you know, if there are people measuring this kind of thing. But if you, for instance, are having a smartphone up to your ear next to your brain for, say, an average of an hour a day, what are those kind of frequencies? What are those things doing to you in the long term? Uh, You know, like I had a friend who used to run the ER here in northern New Mexico in Taos. And she would talk about the telemetry that existed at the hospital. And she said she could feel it every time she walked in that building, that we live in this crazy culture, and like to the point that you were just making about these things. Said I think, interestingly, what's happened with our culture, and this is not my idea. This is actually I think it was a, a management consultant named Meg Wheatley. And she said, we have taken on as attributes, as humans, we are now mimicking more technology in terms of speed and efficiency and, you know, wanting to be busy and losing in the process, the human attributes of caring and connection. Does that resonate for you? Oh, yeah. And and by the way,
0: whether you're aware of it or not, the Russians and the Scandinavians have been doing extensive studies about what you were just talking about for many years now. And there's tons, tons of evidence, very, very clear evidence of the physical harm that having a cell phone up to your ear or even on your hip, the way how it affects your kidneys or or things like that, that's thoroughly documented and studied over there. But none of that information gets to the U.S. The media (laughs) won't touch it. Absolutely will not touch it, even though it's totally out there and available. The U.S. media will not touch it with a thousand-mile pole.
1: (laughs) Well, and and you already know the answer to that. So So what what
0: happens is that over here in the U.S., everybody can claim plausible
1: deniability. Uh Uh-huh. Well, and it's also, it's keeping the wheels of capitalism absolutely greased. If we start really questioning so much... You know, in that piece that I had sent to you, and this is, you know, a concern for me, and this is very much still connected to noetic balancing because we're trying to get into, you know, this is sort of the Oriental Chinese medicine view of things that our natural systems are really quite astonishing in terms of what they can do. This isn't to say they can do everything, but you know, in terms of intuition, you know, like I can do a long distance balancing with someone from, you know, I'll be here in New Mexico and someone in Hawaii and have exactly the same results as doing it in person. Because now we're really getting into the whole quantum physics of all this sort of stuff. It's quite astonishing what's really available, yet we seem to be relinquishing so much for what I call the synthetic world.
0: Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you a while back whether you can do your noetic balancing remotely with people. Oh, yeah. And how you would do
1: it. It's interesting, Tonio, that the process is basically what I do is I do a mock-up of a body, you know, so I have some blankets and I have like a doll's head, that kind of stuff, do the whole mock-up of the body. And I work with this mock-up in front of me as if that particular human's with me. That person is lying down the client, wherever they may be on the planet, and they have either a phone or headphones, you know, and so they're in the very position that I've requested them to be in. And then because, you know, I'll have headphones on myself, they'll have headphones or however they're they're responding, then we can still communicate that way. And I just go through the exact same process as if I was doing it in person. And I'll be perfectly honest. The first time I tried this, I think it was with someone in Oklahoma. So it was a good state away. And I was continually amazed during the process during the session going, wow this is really working this is incredible and this is like magic so anyhow it works and I don't know if it's the power of intention or I you know there is I'm sure some explanation but we've talked about this actually in the past that yeah we've yeah, talked, yeah. we've acknowledged
0: that the whole concept of space and time are really constructs of the ego-based world, of the physical-based world, of the collapsed world, and that actually we live in both the collapsed world and the unformed world.
1: Yeah, and I think Robert gets into whole discussions of David Bohm's implicate order and all that kind of stuff. But this other world that you're referring to is, in fact, this larger energetic world that is completely connected. And I know, of course, there's that kind of you know, colloquial saying is like we are all connected. That's true, but more so than any of us can even possibly imagine. Do you remember Jill Bolte Taylor's book, My Stroke of Insight? Oh yeah. And yeah. you know, what a great there, story. <laughs> yes. And there was a great example of that very connected world becoming apparent in this very real way to a brain researcher of all people, no one who really had any kind of spiritual beliefs or any of that sort of thing. She was saying like, oh my God, you know, the desk is melding into the wall, which is melding into the floor, which is melding, that there was all she could see it actually connected. It was fascinating. So there is, you know, it's like, I can't remember if it's Hafez or if it's Rumi, but you know, the line in the poem is something like, if you pray today, somebody somewhere on this planet will be affected.
0: And it can go back and forward in time as well.
1: Yes, exactly. Like Robert had this very interesting exercise called the time angel. And what he does with this, in the example he used, there was a gal sequestered in her bedroom all through her childhood. And it obviously created lots of trauma you know, really made her quite fearful of the world. So he was working with her later. And so, you know, they went into a meditation together. And he said, now let's imagine there's going to be an angel that's going to be showing up to comfort you while you're back in time in that bedroom. And when they came out of this meditation, she said, you know, when I was a kid, this was my savior. She said, I did, in fact, have an angel that I spoke to every day so that I could feel like I was not completely abandoned in my bedroom the whole time. So we do have ways of playing with this stuff. You know, I do this thing, Tonio, this is just me personally, but I have my own abandonment things going on from my own childhood. And there's some part of me that knows because this is very much connected to my mother and how she is as a person but you know she's kind of emotionally unavailable for whatever reason and there's no good or bad it's just what is so when i can go into a room like say if it was a concert or something and there's this young part of me that can pick out in less than a second who all of the most emotionally unavailable women are in that room and that part of me of course is quite attracted to them and now this is my adult self and this was something i got through therapy thanks to that lovely therapist. I put my arm around that younger part of myself. And this is metaphorically, but I I do that inside. And I say, thank you so much for the information. Now I know where I don't have to go again. Thank you for that. And it's really a lovely process of embracing those younger parts of ourselves so that we can be out there in the world and go, no, I'm not going to be taken out by my default thing whatever that was, and then I can even follow it up with, I forgive myself for believing that I need to be attracted to emotionally unavailable women in order to get my mother's love, something like that. Mm -hmm. But it's pretty wild. So good news, and this is, of course, you know, anybody can get in touch with a noetic practitioner. There's a website called noeticbalancing.com. And then there's a whole list of practitioners and a number who do these long distance things. But you can also read about it in the book. But even just the information you and I are talking about today, anyone can create forgiveness statements for themselves. And you don't even have to be in a sacred space or do some ritual or anything like that. It's really quite pragmatic. And it's either I forgive myself for believing or I forgive myself for judging. And just play with that. And I, of course, you know, Dr. Hugh Len would simply go, "You know, just use, you know, I'm sorry, forgive me, thank you. I love you, you know, with anything that is creating a ripple in your life, and then just notice, has anything changed over a period of time? Because I don't know. Tell me, Tony, do you track, at least like track yourself in the context of your life, not so much to the extent of like, oh, well, everything went great at the farmers' market this morning or something like that. But like tracking how you are reacting to the world, how you are being in the world, and if there's any modifications that you need to take that if you want to be sort of different in the world as you go about. Do you do anything like that?
0: Um, I haven't been doing that. I've gone through phases where I've done that to some degree, but I tend to be more kind of disorganized than organized in that sort of a way. Yeah. Less systematic in the way I do things. But I go through phases where, you know, if I'm, I'm exploring a certain practice, I will actually do it. But I haven't done anything like that in a while. <laughs> My life has been kind of a a roiling chaos in a way lately. <laughs> <laughs> well, not, and,
1: not, not really, but, but still that <laughs> Well, and so in relation to this, you know, unlike you, it's kind of haphazard. Like if something crazy is happening, then it's like, oh, so is this bringing up an old thing, whatever, and do I need to address it further, that kind of oh, thing? Yeah. Yeah. You know, that yeah. comes up. And the cool thing is, hopefully, I'm, I'm hoping that most people over age 50 at least would have developed a certain bag of tools that you have so that when something comes up you can pull out whatever tool to help you get you through. So in relation to this tracking thing, you had mentioned, I think by email, that you had gotten back in touch with your spiritual community out in was it San Diego? Was that where you were involved? Yep. And how was that seeing, you know, getting back in touch with those people and just sort of checking in and seeing, you know, have they continued on with their spiritual work and their studies? Or what's going on with their lives? Has that made much difference? Um, We haven't gone into that
0: level of detail yet, but I found out about this Facebook community about a month after they had started it. So when I first went on, I read through a month's worth of stuff and I found it emotionally overwhelming in a really Mm -hmm. beautiful way. Yeah. I just felt like my heart was like, aching from just this, like, oh, my people. My people that I haven't seen and felt and been with for, like, 40 years. Oh, my Uh God. This is so amazing. (laughs) This is incredible.
1: Yeah. And,
0: uh, And yesterday, I did an interview with one of them.
1: Oh, great. And how did
0: that go? It went great. This guy, he does healing work, or he does what he calls awakening intensives he Mm -hmm. used to be a a fisher hoffman process teacher and he's done various forms of psychotherapy because one of his early things was when he started realizing or you know discovering himself as a child he realized he wanted to study psychology so he you know he followed that path and then realized that that wasn't it (laughs) (laughs) That that was like the ladder that led to nowhere or to to the wrong building. And then he had to, you know, make a 180 degree change into another direction. And he found the community that where I was. But he's he's probably about 10 years old, 10 or 15 years older than me. So I was 18 when I got there. So for me, it was is has been really amazing and magical and wonderful and and i'm still in the early stages of reconnecting with some of these people
1: and the reason why i brought this up and this is you know just peripherally related to noetic balancing i don't do this on any continual basis i have noticed sort of in general that people you know i'm now 68 i'll be 69 in october that for the most part people in my age range are not doing so great physically and I've also noticed that there's not a lot that have done, and there's some, but I'd say the majority haven't done very much, you know, in terms of emotional, psychological, or spiritual work at all. And you know, just sort of watching the general culture, and you know, wondering like, so, it, and it's like I'm always hesitant to use the word hope because I think that sometimes can fall into the ego thing of like, well, I'm hoping for a destination, that kind of thing. I'd like to feel encouraged, I guess that. People are doing some kind of work because I feel like the culture in general is at a precipice. And this is the world culture in terms of like, you know, we've had hazy skies here for the last month. And this is from wildfires that are to the west of us and to the north of us. Are you getting impacted? I know that New York City, they have gotten impacted from this large fire that's in southern Oregon. Are you getting that as well?
0: I'm not aware of anything here. But I have a book for you to check out. Sure. It's called Weird. It's spelled W-Y-R-D. Okay. I'm writing it down. Against the Modern World. And it's by Ramon Elani. All right. And you have to go to his website to get the book. I highly, highly recommend. It's a very, very powerful and deep
1: book. So the reason why I brought this particular avenue up is just that I have fellow practitioners that say, well, if everybody could just get balanced, a noetic balancing, we'd be living on a different planet. Then again, I think if everybody on the planet was touching dirt on a regular basis, we'd be living in a different planet. But it seems like right now, and this is the more cynical part of me, that we're like going to hell in a handbasket very quickly. And, you know, the climate change... We're only just seeing the very beginnings of this kind of stuff, you know, it's sort of like people's optimism about the pandemics like, well, we're really kind of maybe halfway through, if anything, you know, that human behavior. I'm not encouraged. Let me put it that way. A lot of times when I see and I see this out in the woods, too. In fact, it was just only a couple of days ago I was out there and there was two young people. They're clearly not from around here. One of them is 20 and he looked like he needed to be in the E.R., And I think it was clearly altitude sickness, but they had done no research and no anything as far as, you know, that can happen to anyone. But I see this all the time, Tony, of people that just seem to be unprepared for what insanity this modern living does, particularly our disconnection from nature is appalling. It really is appalling what is happening. And, And the kind of like the urbanization of the natural world is just... You know, I spend as much time picking up trash as I do taking pictures. And that's not great, uh, you know, to see that thing happening. So anyhow, back to the more positive that if I think the hope is and, you know, and I'm not sure if people have this as a general thing. It's like so if we're here on this planet, you know, it's like that Mary Oliver line at the end of her poem. What is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? How are we going to live in such a way in which we can discover this wild thing, whatever gifts we've been given, this wild thing of who we are, and then how do we weave our thread and our threads into the fabric of the world so that, and this is more of a Robert Waterman thought, we've discussed this before, how do we make for the growing of the soul, which ultimately means the growing of love and the managing of our fears? How does that sound to you? (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, up until the last line about bringing the soul into it, yeah. it sounded like you were reading the end of the Web of Meaning book. I think that's the book where that he ends on that note. And I think there there may have been a couple of books recently that I've read and done interviews that ended on that same note. But I yeah. think it was Web of Meaning. Is how are you going to weave? Yeah, it is from the web of meaning. How are you gonna weave the sacred thread of your life or or the the thread of meaning of your life into the greater world? You know, yeah. yeah. It's a beautiful way to relate as ourselves to the world around us, to see ourselves yeah. as an integral part of it, but also as a part that can really offer something beneficial and beautiful not the old story of we're not good enough or there's something wrong with us you know which kind of eclipses that sense that we are deeply worthwhile and have something really wonderful to offer the world
1: yeah and i just wonder sometimes that the the sort of the mass psychology you know, is like, well, we just want to keep this old way of going. But it seems to me as that that precipice that I was mentioning earlier, that it's almost calling upon us. And I would even say the pandemic's calling upon us to step up the game. That in theory, we've been doing a certain amount of personal training, every one of us, whether it's on the physical, emotional, psychological, what, whatever levels that you're doing it, so that now the game, we really are at a possible endpoint. And You know, I mentioned this to those dear women up in Fort Collins, the ones that are working with my book. And I was saying, you know, if I was to guess what the earth was feeling at this particular moment, the earth would be utterly delighted to lose the human species and continue on as it happily was before. And the question is, to what extent are we going to get in sync with this beautiful, glorious planet that we're on? and not be literally the scourge of it. And how are we gonna first do that work internally so that we can clean up whatever disasters we've got going on inside, our beliefs in particular, like through noetic balancing, so that we can go out in the world and, you know, the thing is, and not that I'm anti-activism by any means, because I think they're great activists doing work, but it really comes down to our presence in the world. And I don't feel like I have to go out and discuss noetic balancing or anything like that. All I have to be is a certain presence and energetically, that's what is actually bringing the changes about. Of course, the other work is important and you you don't want to belittle that, but it's our actual presence. And what are we going to do to make that clean so the rest of the world gets cleaned up as well?
0: I totally agree. And I think that's where it has to begin. It's very much like the physical world began as an idea. You know, the objects, the things in this world began as ideas in people's minds and then we created them. So they start out at a certain level and they mm-hmm. gradually, like on an ethereal level that where we're, we're just imagining something. And then if we're passionate about it, we bring it down to the emotional level and we're like, yes, I want to create this thing. And then yeah. we bring it into our physical reality by actually using our hands and other physical attributes to make it happen in some way. And then it becomes manifest in the outer world. We have this bizarre notion that the material world just is. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like the religious notion of God. God is, and it's this unquestionable thing. It's this a priori unquestionable thing. But of course, we know that's complete nonsense that The religious notion of God is as much a creation of humanity as the physical objects and technologies in this world and the physical world. Because through the understanding of quantum physics, quantum mechanics, we understand that the physical world does not exist until we collapse it into being.
1: Right. Right. And so that's, you know, you're bringing up that beautiful idea of the soul view. And this is what the mystics knew all along. The outer world is simply a reflection of our inner world. And to the extent that we're willing to go ahead and work with that inner world is to the extent that we can actually modify the outer world. So to me, it's a little disheartening to see how the outer world has really, you know, we've fallen into the literal analytical kind of you know, hard and fast. This is how you have to do everything. And in essence, it relies exclusively on our five senses. And that's all the information we're ever going to need. We'll go from there and we'll even create machines that can even duplicate, you know, AI to do that kind of thing. The interesting area, like with noetic balancing, we're relying on a whole nother sense, you know, another awareness of the world which is really what Robert Waterman would call soul eyes. If When we use our soul eyes, we are actually perceiving the world on a completely different level. And how then, from that perspective, do we start working with the world, working with ourselves? And the point is, I don't wake up in the morning and say, how am I going to change the world today? If anything, I'm waking up in the morning and saying, what can I experience and how might I change myself today? That seems to be the better question, at least in my life. Does that resonate for you?
0: Oh, absolutely. And I think probably some of us wake up in the morning and think, well, what am I going to do today? Or what would I like to do? And then usually what happens is, or what comes to mind, or on a feeling level, are the obstacles to to achieving. <laughs>
1: Yeah. (laughs) Although this is a thing where we started the conversation, like me going into the high country, like getting into the tundra above treeline. And it's not a bad wildflower year. It's not exceptional, but it's way better than it's been the last few years because we've had a lot of afternoon rain. For me to get up there and actually, you know, this woman who I had run into and befriended just for that day, she was saying, this is as close to heaven as we'll get. And actually, and I turned to her and I said, Actually, this is heaven, and all those flowers you're looking at, those are the angels. So, you know, for me to get to a place where it hasn't been spoiled by human interaction, intervention, and to see the natural world still in all of its glory, that is very heartening for me, and just like, yes, this planet is still unbelievable is still so glorious. And as much as I can do that, and I think we can even do that in our, you know, day-to-day lives as we're even running our errands. You know, it's like when I'm talking to, you know, like I know all the people at the post office. It's so small here in this little town where I live that, you know, you get to ask them, we don't talk about the postal service or politics or anything. We're talking about like, so how's your garden doing? And are your kids okay? And how are you feeling? You know, we talk about the real stuff. And I know it makes a little bit of a difference because we're not getting lost in the kind of refuse of the modern world. We're talking about what I call the real world, the world that's more connected to our hearts than the world that's connected to our heads.
0: The world that's most important to us.
1: Yes, exactly. And the more we can keep bringing that forward. You know, what What was it? It's at the end of that I Naomi mean, Shihab you know, poem that I've read before here, which is one about, you know, going to the airport and the, and the airplane flight has been postponed and they end up, you know, breaking out drinks and she's sharing, you know, cookies with a woman from Palestine and, you know, doing all that. And at the very end, she says, you know, the line is in essence like, this is the world I want to live in, the shared world, the world where we care for each other. Which is really beautiful, and I think that world still does exist. We just don't get to read about it very much. It's really more up to us to go out and experience it and create it if necessary.
0: Exactly,
1: one hundred (laughs) percent. Exactly,
0: one thousand percent. (laughs) One (laughs) million.
1: Maybe that's a good place to stop, Tonio, because that you know I'm like sitting here thinking, should I cry? (laughs) You know, it's like (laughs) that's the world I want to be in. Yeah, me too.
0: As always, it's been such a wonderful pleasure to talk with
1: you again. It's just fantastic. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: That's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.